welcome to Culture Matters, my podcast where we dive into the many facets of organizational culture. I'm your host, Subhu Kalpati. I'm a talent leadership and organizational development professional. In this episode, we'll explore reigniting the power of intrinsic motivation in the workplace. Our guest today is Sharath Jeevan. Sharath works with leaders to navigate direction, build motivating cultures and nurture potential. Sharath was awarded an OBE in the 2022 Queen's New Year's Honours for founding and leading STIR Education. STIR has helped ignite the motivation of over 200,000 school teachers around the world. Welcome to the podcast, Sharath. Real pleasure, Zubh. Such a, such a pleasure as well. So, yeah. Great. So, um, Sharath, maybe a good starting point for us for this conversation is uh, if, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your journey. Uh, you know, we, we got connected a few years ago um, and you have a very interesting profile and background in the way that you have uh, worked uh, uh, in, in the areas that you've worked. So you're a leading expert in the uh, space of intrinsic motivation now and also intrinsic leadership. Uh, that's something that you have um, you know, worked on extensively. You founded an organization called Intrinsic Labs um, where you help leaders build uh, intrinsically motivated cultures. Very interesting. And of course, you've also founded the STIR Education where you work with you know thousands of teachers and millions of children in uh, schools around the world. All of that sounds, you know, excellent and super exciting. Um, but I'm, I'm guessing it's also ch- comes with its own set of challenges. Um, so, how did you get here, Sharad? I, th- I think that will be a question uh, for us to uh, work with, if, if that's all right. Yeah, I think so. In a way, I think my life has sort of followed the kind of inflection moments that um, that I've helped leaders on, really, in many, many ways. And I think it's a good way, right, to serve leaders is to have gone through a grapple with those kind of questions yourself, and it's what makes it authentic. So I'm the son of Indian immigrants to the UK. I was born in Chennai, um, South India. I came when I was four to the UK. I uh, spent a few years here, grew up in the Middle East, came back. Um, and I think, you know, being the son of, of of immigrants, there's a lot of some amazing things. I'm always grateful for what my parents and, and their generation really in, in the UK did to, to, to you know, build a new life for, for us and, and, and others. But that came with its own baggage, right? And I think there's a, there was a lot of pressure to tick conventional boxes. Um, and the frame of reference, I think, I think culturally in India as well, right, is, is very extrinsic. It's very much about doing things because there's there's some kind of reward at the end, some kind of status, whether it's financial rewards, those kinds of things as well. Yeah. And I guess I followed that for the first maybe 12 years of my, my working career. Um, I went to Cambridge, I went to consulting, I went to INSEAD for my MBA, worked at companies like eBay, I took some time off in between, but I think I wasn't really courageous enough to uh, find my own path really as well. And um, I had a difficult situation in, a, in one of the companies I was working with where uh, with a boss, it was quite a tough situation. And I think I was so miserable. My wife said to me, um, look, you're someone who just do what you want to do now. Like, what, why, you know, life is short, go for it. And sometimes we need these kinds of um, permissions, right, to, to jump off that ladder I always had a deep sense of what I wanted to do. I was very interested in social entrepreneurship at that stage, for example, but something was holding me back. And I think that gave me the sort of license to go and jump. I spent 15 years as a social entrepreneur running a, a scheme in the UK. And then, as you mentioned, 10 years in India, um, also in Africa, East Asia, et cetera, Brazil, uh, looking at how to help teachers in government schools, if I just take India, um, to find their motivation again. So what to Karnataka and Tamil Nadu and Delhi, um, some work in UP. And I think what I what I learned for that really made me think about my own experience, that a lot of this was not about money or rewards, but it was about 
how to reconnect with the work itself and find deeper meaning, purpose, the sense of agency in our work, a sense of getting better. These were things we were not creating in the in the teaching work environment, right? And India built you know, 10 lakh schools, a million schools. This was a big problem at scale. And so that was the largest, um, you know, ever intrinsic motivation, at least to my knowledge, in the world in terms of making some of these ideas, taking them from academia and making them practical. It inspired me to write a book called Intrinsic, which was all about trying to take that those concepts and apply it to a, a to, to the main area of us, areas of our lives. Since doing that, as you mentioned, um, the, the real appetite has come from leaders who said, look, this is a, a new way of leading. So I've been developing this idea about intrinsic leadership, working on my second book right now on on LinkedIn, I'm sharing it live as as we go, but yeah, I think those, it's for me. It's been a journey, really, uh, as much as any kind of fixed idea. And I think um, it's very interesting how it sort of um, is parallel to many of the leaders that I work with and the journeys they and the leadership teams go on on these issues too. Maybe I would like to start with your book, um, since you already mentioned it, which is called Intrinsic. Um, and the subtitle that you've given for the uh, to the book is A Manifesto to Reignite Your Inner Drive. I think that's the that's the name you've given. I was curious, why did you, uh, you know, while while all of it made a lot of sense, and it's, it's something that I've also been quite passionate about myself as a topic, uh, why did you call it a manifesto? Uh, what was the thinking behind calling it that? So I think part of it was this idea that, you know, um, I think we do need a manifesto. I think it felt like a strong word. I was talking to my publisher about this, and it wasn't a statement. I think it really felt like um, we have to make a, a statement for what we stand for. And I think what's happened in the world is that people have been thinking differently. Um, you know, many of us in the world, we haven't felt brave enough to say, look, we, we need to stand for something new, and we need to create a new norm, a new normal for everyone else. Then and bring them along on that journey too. So I think it was a strong word because it felt like a, a genuinely strong statement of intent really as well. Wonderful. Uh, in the opening pages of your book, um, Sharath, you, you talk about the fact that we are uh, you know, kind of in this motivational mess. I think that's the terminology you use. And we live these, you know, jaded, empty, and at times unhappy lives. Um, and you also alluded to the fact that at some point in your career also, you were you were kind of feeling that. Um, so why do you think that is? Why, why is there this fundamental problem uh, with, with how we approach work today? I look at working lives. Um, so I think we're going to be working about 90,000 hours in our lives, right? And that might climb in, in years to come. I think the idea that work is only a place where we get, you know, financial success. I think that our mental models of work have basically been been wrong, I think, you know, in a nutshell. And I think work is a much more, I think, a deeper entry point into meaning and purpose for us overall. And I define two types of purpose, really. One is a sort of big P purpose, where what is the bigger picture of what you're trying to do? Is there, is there a major problem you're trying to address in your work? And I had a chance to work with that in education, for example. But I think irrespective of what is sector, not all of us work in the social sector or you know government or whatever, I think all of us should have this idea of big, small P purpose, which is all about helping and serving others each day and every day. And I think, you know, um, if you're I'm working with a, a major restaurant group now in the UK, you know, every day that they, they bring joy to people's lives, right? Because people go, they have enjoy their meal. It's a transformative experience for them. You know, they have a chance to celebrate, to mark, um, you know, mark their lives in a strong way. So I think if we can weave in that sense of purpose much more deeply into what we do, that can really be powerful. It's not that there is a lot of work that is about drudgery and stuff we have to do, but I think if we can see the bigger context to what we do, 
And if lead as leaders, we can try to weave those feedback loops in so we can see the ultimate people we're helping and serving and we see the difference we can make. I think work becomes much more motivating. And we really have a sense of helping and serving others through our work. I think things like community service, family, you know, in India, for example, we live much more nuclear families. We don't do the, you know, our communities are not as vibrant as they, they were. That's another story. But but in that vacuum, I think work has a really important role to play. And I don't think it means we have to be workaholics. We don't have to work you know, all the time. But the hours we do work, I think we can make them much more meaningful. I think it's also a good segue into my next question, um, Sharad, because you already mentioned purpose. Um, and you, of course, get into the details of uh, the three levers to intrinsic motivation, which is autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Um, I remember diving into those myself when I wrote my book many years ago. Um, and I also had the privilege to interview Daniel Pink at some point, um, where you know I, I spoke to him about his book, Drive, as well. Um, so it's 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 great, uh, you know, to see you kind of unpack that so well in your book and come out with so many fascinating examples and research. It was it was really great for me to read through all of that. Uh, so if I can request you to help unpack these a little, I love the big P and the small P for for purpose. Um, what about autonomy uh, and mastery? And so I think it's so important to start with the uh, with purpose first. Uh, so when I define purpose very much as how what we do helps and serves others, it's almost like the GPS in a in a car, right, that we're tracking. Um, and the idea of really trying to anchor that and look at how we can make that difference each day and every day is, is very important to start off with. I think once we're clear about that, looking, as you said, about autonomy, how can we try to um, create enough um, room for us, enough freedom to feel like we're making a difference towards our purpose? And what typically happens, we tend to have two extremes in our working lives. Either we feel very micromanaged, very um, disempowered, that's one extreme. The other time zone is we feel like there's almost too much freedom. It's so unstructured. We're making it up as we go along. We're scared we're going to be get, you know, get ourselves in trouble. What I found is there's, a, there's an in-between point, a sweet spot in the middle, which is this kind of idea of guided autonomy. And how do we try and find that with our organizations? And you know, if I take, for example, teachers that actually they had a lot more freedom in their classrooms than they, they thought, but how to bring that up, how to try and embrace that freedom in a safe way, for example, or you know, let's say you're in a, a restaurant and you're you're serving someone. How do you try and make sure that you have freedom to read? If something goes wrong, you can actually fix that problem for the customer. So that's the idea of autonomy there, and mastery. I think a lot of it's moving. Um, you know, this idea of getting better at what we do. We never get to perfection. It's always a journey. A lot of mastery now, and especially with all the uh, chat GPT and AI stuff is moving more to human mastery, stuff we don't generally focus on in our education system or business school or any of these places. So how do we learn to work with others better, influence, collaborate, communicate, build things with others really so we build a joint direction together in what we do. So those are the kind of ideas of purpose, autonomy, mastery, or PAM in a, in a simple acronym as well. I want to go a little deeper because you you touched upon these uh, you touched upon these five important domains in our lives where we can better incorporate intrinsic motivation. You call them work, um, success, and talent, relationships, uh, parenting, and citizenship. Those are the five areas that you talk about. Um, uh, I'm interested in the first two specifically. So maybe we can spend a little bit of time talking about uh, work. Maybe we start there. 
Um, so seen through the lens of motivation, uh, Sharad, what's the uh, what's the problem with having, you know, too much focus on extrinsic rewards? You touched upon this already a little bit, which is, you know, too much of carrot, carrot and stick motivators, such as rewards, incentives, pay for performance and all, and all of those things. What's the what's the problem if, if we focus too much on that and not enough on, on intrinsic motivation? Yeah, so I think, you know, the, when, when the sort of the carrot and stick approach worked is when we were in what I would describe so was a kind world, you know, K-I-N-D, world of work where it was very clear, things are very structured, you know, factories were like that, right? Or even think about offices, the way they were organized, you know, there was a certain amount of workflow, certain amount of things we had to produce every every month or, you know, so much paperwork or accounts to fill in or whatever. In a very stable world, you can do carrot and stick because you can, A, you know what's going to come up. So you know, have a good sense of what's possible in terms of outputs. And you can then incentivize people around that, right? Either by, you know, it could be in a performance rate to pay, bonuses, all the stuff we become very used to in organizational life, or it could be sanctions where you're punished or you're fired, those kinds of things. It's not a very humanizing way to work, but it worked you know, in some ways, right? And, and at least in a low level sense for, for centuries, right? So I think what has happened is work has moved from the kind to the wicked world where there are no easy solutions. and there are no easy um, technical fixes for the really important aspects of work. So let me give an example. I think the pandemic that we've all been through, um, I would argue the the, the vaccine um, was a really, was a kind problem that was solved quite well. You know, that there was a in record time, the world got a scientific breakthrough that could produce the vaccine. That's stuff we've known how to do for a long time. Yeah. How we manage you know, social distancing, um, lockdowns, all of these things from, you know, all the way from China to Sweden. None of them were done particularly well, I would argue. And because that stuff was very messy, it was about human interaction, about trying to figure this out as we went. That's how work overall is shifting much more. I would say now 30% kind, 70% wicked, or the other way around. In that environment, it's very difficult to have enough predictability to create those kinds of incentives. And I think in those environments where we don't, the external world is so turbulent, We've got to lead from within. We've got to sort of manage ourselves, motivate ourselves, knowing that we are trying to do the best thing we can do. We are finding that sense of purpose, autonomy, mastery. That's probably the best compass we can have in a more turbulent world. I think that's the key difference that has really shifted how the world of work has, you know, functions today. Um, I, I want to, uh, you know, go a little bit into this one exa- very fascinating example that you cite in the book, which kind of, um, uh, you know, hooked me. Uh, I was hooked to it as, you know, you make this point that uh, not all cases of burnout um, can be traced, uh, you know, to just long working hours. Of course, it's it's important that we work, uh, you know, the right number of hours. Uh, but there is also this this fact that if if you don't feel purposeful at work, it it could also be you know a reason for people to feel anxious and and to burn themselves out. Or as Adam Grant calls it, I think bore out is is the word that he uses. You're so bored out of your wits that you don't feel like working anymore. So the purpose is just not there. Um, could you could you throw some light on this uh, as to what uh, you know? A what is this problem that we are facing? And I think the example that you give is, is Sweden. I think that's the that's the research that you quote in the book. Uh, could you could you throw some light on this point, uh, Sharath? Yeah, so I think what's happened is, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about work-life balance, and I think that there's a level of it at which that is important. So we want to make sure that we have time for other things that I talked in the book about, our relationships, our parenting, our, our lives as citizens, all of those are really important in our communities. But I do think, you know, Sweden is a good example. They have been reducing the number of hours actually quite consistently over the last 20, 30 years. And 
thing that the data I remember from the book was that 1% of Swedes work more than 50 hours a week now, which is incredible. I was joking at a law firm that probably 99% of them worked more than 50 hours a week. But um, but that kind of idea that um, that has not led to any significant um, increases in motivation. There's actually been a significant increase in clinical depression and those kinds of uh, mental health problems at work in Sweden, despite those hours going down so so drastically. So I'm not saying that, you know, I would love to see if the four the four day work week works, all of these things are great, but they are not a panacea in themselves. And I think it's much more about how the experience of work comes across. And it basically can we bring that the humanity back on it? We've tried to mechanize work and make it so industrial, so dehumanized. That is the kind of bore out stuff you're talking about there. I think if we can bring more of that human connection, the why of what we do. Um, I think A, you know, AI will make sure that the what humans end up doing will be more fulfilling quite naturally. Mm. But there's always a level at which we will have to do stuff that isn't always very exciting. That includes my my work. But if we can understand why we're doing it, who we're serving in the process, it's a lot easier to keep motivated and engaged around in that regard. Um, I want to also uh, now touch touch upon the other two levers, which is autonomy. I think uh, we spoke about it a little bit. Um, and you also spoke about this point about guided autonomy, giving the right kind of autonomy to our people so that it doesn't become an, an anarchy of sorts. Um, right? Could you maybe give an example? And this is also something that you mentioned in the book about how you use guided autonomy at, at STIR education, for example. That's, that's one I remember. Um, any examples here that you might want to share on how to really you know, uh, give people the right kind of control and agency so that they uh, they bring their best selves to work. So I'm doing some work with the National Health Service, the NHS in the UK right now, Subu, and um, it's one of the largest employers. I think it's 2 million people from memory. Um, it employs across the country alone in the UK. And what has happened there is that um, there's this kind of trend I'm seeing in many sectors where basically great people are beaten down by the system around them. The people go into a system, teachers are very similar, Okay, most most workers, they go in to make a difference, right? They have a high degree of intrinsic motivation to begin with. But what happens is the culture around them, the system around them, almost um, extinguishes that intrinsic motivation. And so they end up plateauing and falling. And and this is kind of, it leads to this kind of psychological concept called being in a learned helplessness. You know, you feel like yeah. you can't do anything. You're, you're beaten around by the system around you. So what they're doing there with leaders there in the health system is to look at Actually, there's a lot of room, a lot of um, wide space where you do have more autonomy. And a lot of it is about sometimes being a little bit pirate, you know, like you know, doing things and asking permission later. But we've created such strong compliance-based systems. You know, all these, um, any practice, any clinic in the UK is heavily inspected, very heavily regulated. And so it's very difficult for physicians to feel like they can they can make change happen and improve things. and make life better for the patients, right? That's a disaster for patient outcomes and the quality of health. So what we're exploring is what can they do right now uh, with that? And also what I'm finding is if there are a supportive group where everyone is being a bit pirate, I'm working in about half of London with leaders there, in a way there's a collective permission to innovate. And that the system then can be more um, conducive to that. We can look at some structural changes that make it even more possible to change and innovate as well. But I think it starts with all of us as leaders saying, look, we didn't go into our jobs just to um, tread water. We went in to really make a difference. What what can we really do to, to in this case, serve patients better or serve our, our customers or clients or communities better? Start with that anchor 
And then let's go from there. And let's grab that autonomy, seize it, and ask for permission a bit later sometimes. You mentioned that we don't live in, you know, uh, live and work in kind working environments or kind learning environments anymore. anymore. We we have to face the fact that we are working in wicked and complex, fairly complicated work environments, and therefore uh, you need to, we need to adapt to that. So, in that context, um, Sharath, what does mastery really mean? What what are some skills that we should, uh, you know, as as employees, as employers, focus on, and how do we therefore think broader and, uh, you know, make ourselves uh, more available and better prepared to to face this complex, uh, wicked work environment that we all uh, face today. Yeah, great question. So, so I think um, there the are lots of individual characteristics of mastery or areas of mastery, like you know, um, communication or influencing. Or I'm sure you, I know you've covered those in previous episodes of the podcast. I think to try and bring them together, the big difference on mastery is I think we've moved from what I'd call an escalator model of of career um, progress, where and that was how you know my mental model was: you did job one, or first of all you went to a good school, that when you went to a good college or university. From there, you went to a good job, and that you want to have this beautiful escalator that kept going up. Perhaps I'm the only one to see this, but I think that escalator has, has broken down, right? In most countries where we work in, we don't have those easy parts anymore. It's much less well defined. And but I think there's a lot to celebrate in that because what the escalator model did is it it made us always think about the next thing. You know, I'm, I'm polishing my CV now so that you know I can be you know. Um, uh, better in the next role. I was I just met the CEO of Unilever actually a couple of weeks ago at an event. And in the book I was I was talking about Unilever because they went back to look at their product innovations and they find they were they found they were not making enough breakthrough products. Yeah, the top managers were not being as innovative as they could. They wanted to ask why. And what it turned out is that these many of these managers were on two-year assignment rotations in India or around the world where they kept flipping from one job to the next one. And so the incentive was not to, back to incentives, was not to create a really breakthrough um, product or service for the company. It was to try to show some tangible output in a year, because then within a year, you were thinking about the next role already, right? So it was being gamed in that way, and they changed that to the credit as a, as a great company. But I think that idea that the best way to prepare for this is to be what I would call all in, and really trying to do well in your current role and embrace everything you can possibly learn from it. Don't go in transactionally. Don't just think, hey, I'm going to do what's on the job description. Mastery is about going beyond the job description saying, how do I really fulfill myself as a human being and achieve the best thing for my organization and the people we help and serve? That mindset means you're, we're genuinely curious, we're learning new things, we're engaging with lots of different people, we're really getting out there, meeting, building networks, all of these things. By default, we will almost certainly get a great role afterwards but we will enjoy it so much we may want to stay for a while and really learn and develop and throw ourselves and it took me 10 years at start to really go deep and and, and take it to its full every the limits i could i could take it to so i think a lot of this is shifting away from the what next challenge of mastery to how do i make the most of what i've got right now it's very much an abundance mindset rather than a scarcity mindset this is there are already so many learning opportunities and so much right on the web and in the world out there. How do we squeeze every bit of learning and, and growth out of those? And also find a great nurturer in our lives, someone who can help unlock our potential. I found that to be a very important ingredient of, of, of unlocking mastery as well. 
this there was one a very interesting point in your book uh, sharad with also caught my eye among many other things uh, was this uh, the fact that you have incorporated pay transparency at at stir education i'm sure this is not you know this is not a standalone policy it it integrates very well with the overall uh, leadership philosophy and uh, the culture that you want to uh, nurture at at stir uh, could you talk a little about that how is it that you you know how did you incorporate uh, incorporate this and what's been some of the outcomes that you've seen as a result of this yeah so i think one of the things that again more, i think in some ways the way to try and reduce the reliance on extrinsic incentives things that are external to us are to sort of make them more transparent and i think pay is a good example where i know in my all my work and research pay is what i call a hygiene factor right that we definitely need a good level of pay to feel comfortable we all have different levels of what comfortable means and there should be no judgment on what that is right because it's all different it depends a lot on where you live as well and you know what if you have kids all of these kinds of things or what lifestyle you want but the key is not to try and maximize income it's to try and make sure you achieve that that good life financially but try to maximize the purpose and meaning subject to achieving you know that 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 level of of, of pay or income that you need so i think where mistakes go wrong is that we we fetishize you know we sort of obsess about pay and one of the best ways to create that obsession is to make pay hidden because we're always wondering no matter how much you know you now i was talking to a, a banker recently who got a you know a 20 million pound bonus um in in again i asked him you know what did you what did you feel when you the boss told you the news and he said charity you know i uh you know i i feel i should work harder next year because i had my my colleague around the you know around the corner got 20 minutes one and a half minutes so <laughs> it's never enough that's the point so i think if we can make it transparent we take away the mystery from it and we just make it a normal thing and we can really focus what i would love to see companies or organizations do is as well as the, the you know the financial package you know here's the increment for the year there's a mastery increment you know that over the next year we're going to help you develop these new areas we're going to help you give more autonomy and we're going to give you a purpose increment in terms of you can spend more time with the customer more time learning about them yeah. meeting their needs as well so i'd love to see if we can weight the non financial to be as and hopefully more important than the financial overtime. I love it. I love the mastery increment and the purpose increment it kind of completely reframes the way that you think about some of these things in the context of uh, building motivation uh, at the workplace. Um wonderful uh, Sharath. Uh, I want to uh, touch upon um you know this this other aspect that you you talk about in the book which is how we define success and how we nurture talent um both at work and and outside. um question to you sharat is uh, why is it that you know we only celebrate a few success stories in each field and how do we uh, broad based success for most of us and what's wrong in the way that we define meritocracy uh, right in the way that we do it today so i think you know most of our, most of our society has been built on a pyramid right and i think india is a good example so but where you know it's all about getting that one person out of you know god knows 10000 or 100000 into an iit or whatever we forget there are 9999 people who had not didn't get there yeah. what do we do for them so i don't think it's it, we definitely want to celebrate excellence brilliance all these things um that it um, example is a great one right let's go for that but i think we should design systems in a way that really enables everyone's potential to be realized and what i think happens in, in a fast growing country like india is that we tend to look at selection as a shortcut right everyone is obsessed by who's the best cricketer at 11 or the best student or whatever it might be what we forget is that what we're mostly doing is measuring what i could would call talent 
that's what's innate in that child or athlete yeah. or uh, entrepreneur or whatever at that point, potential is really forward looking. And what the research in the book was showing was that there's a lot we can do to nurture potential better. So we don't really know what someone is capable of until we give them a chance to have really good nurturing. So rather than make these very, very fixed judgments about, you know, um, you know, you're good enough or not good enough and all this stuff, which is very value laden, often very, very open to bias because we all have cognitive biases. We tend to also favor people who look like us or speak like us or think like us. Be more open and create a nurturing environment where everyone has a chance to bring their best to work and really throw everything they can at their, their work and careers. From that, a lot of innovation will will happen. A lot more people will be successful and will move for success from being something that only a few can attain to something that many can attain in the process. And I think that that nurturing culture we need to build, I, I do a lot of that in a range of organizations now, but it can be done. And I think a lot of it's really trying to get to great nurturing practices of trying to bring out authenticity, connection, excellence of people that we see uh, all around us as well. Fantastic. Your point also takes me back to a conversation that I had heard, I think, last year uh, at, at a conference that was organized by Wharton, uh, where yeah. Angela Duckworth was interviewing uh, Carol Dweck. Um, and they were, of course, talking about the growth mindset uh, and how we focus too much on talent and you know, uh, too much on how people have innate abilities and too little on how can we nurture and build uh, skills, really. Uh, right? And that's, that's essentially what we're talking about. How can we upskill people and develop mastery for them uh, so that they can better equip themselves? Uh, so therefore, there is this conscious shift that's required from just focusing on talent towards building skills. Right? Uh, anything yeah, to add on there, yeah? Yeah, there's great points. About it. I love uh, both Angela and, um, and Carol's work as well. And I think that what I would say, that the, why, the reason why we haven't had enough nurturing in, in to say anywhere in the world really is that it's tough, right? Because what a good nurturer does is they don't try and make us um, the version they think we should be. They make them the, the best version of ourselves, right? And that's a very difficult art to do. So it's understanding someone deeply enough to know get a sense almost better than they can of who they really are and what they want to do. And it's in helping create the right environment around them. It helps them be fully authentic to that, that vision of who they are, feel deep connection to the work that they're doing, and but also is quite unapologetic about excellence, right? That it's okay to have tough conversations, say, look, this wasn't good enough. What does great really look like? You're not achieving your full potential. It's that three-legged stool that's quite difficult to, to sit on. Usually people have got they're good at one or two of those rather than all three elements. And so, yeah, it's an art, but I think we can create that culture. We can practice nurturing at an organizational level and certainly in our own our own careers as well. Yes. Um, I also want to touch upon, um, Sharath, about this point that you make uh, on, on how talent owners, uh, people who hire talent, people who leaders, managers, um, right? If, if we were to focus on that select group, the, the slightly privileged group who have you know a little more power than the rest of us, um, how should they how should they be you know looking at talent? Uh, we have touched upon nurturing, for example. Uh, would you like to add uh, anything more to that? How is it that we should be looking at uh, talent owners should be looking at talent from a you know, pur purpose, autonomy, mastery, lens, anything more that you might want to add there? Yeah, so I, I was very guilty of this, but I don't say as a CEO myself, and I, I was trying to spot and say, who, who's who got, who's got, you know, who's got talent? Who's got, I'm going to focus on my bets on all that stuff. It's very seductive. It's very easy to take that approach. I think what we don't realize is there's a lot of potential that's, that's sort of hidden to us, right? And 
um, things we, we will never see. And, and it's really difficult to unlock that. I think what we can try to do, two things. One is create a deep personal interest with whoever we can possibly do. So make a point to talk to people, not just your direct reports, if you're senior in a company, let's say, try and speak to people one level below, two levels below. That may be even you're at the coffee machine, instead of just talking about the weather or whatever, have a 10-minute conversation about what's going on in that person. What are they excited about? Encourage them, help them to see themselves in a different way, help them see their work differently, maybe give them an idea and one thing they can do even more powerfully right? in terms of excellence. So I think a lot of it is is taking that personal interest and being willing to, to, to get out there. The second thing I think is building a culture where that's that's expected, that everyone should be doing that. So everyone is covered. There are no uh, open bases, if I use an American term there. Everyone has a nurturer in their lives as well. Um, and I think that will, over time, really become deeply systematized in how an organization works. And the people who you know have the most potential, they will flourish for sure in those environments, but will bring everyone along. And it'll feel much more like everyone is benefiting from this potential rather than just a small number. That's that's the key shift you want to try and make here as well. Um, I have, uh, I just have one last, actually two, two, a two-part question, uh, Sharad, before we kind of wind down here, um, is, uh, is something that I love to ask, especially after I read Think Again by Adam Grant, which is since you wrote the book and, um, you know, since you start wo- started working uh, in the space of, of course, education you've been working on for a while now, uh, have you rethought any of your assumptions uh, in the last few years, anything that, you know, that, that made you kind of sit up and uh, take notice and therefore you had to rethink anything at all? No, it's quite a fundamental one, I think. Uh, so so I, I loved writing Intrinsic, my first book. But what I realized when I saw who was actually reading it and who was really engaging most deeply, the Intrinsic was written for every, all readers, right? That was a, a very broad book. But actually, what I found is my audience really were leaders. There were people who were saying, look, I'm, I've got the fancy title. and Maybe I'm mid, mid-career. I've got you know reasonable paycheck. But I, I don't feel fulfilled. I've still got a good innings left. I want to lead differently. And that's what my, my next book, Inflection, is all, all is written for. And I'm writing this live on LinkedIn right now. Uh, it has a draft chapters. But it's really about this idea that actually if a leader can shift how they think, it has a thousand-fold impact, right? Because they can carry many hundreds of thousands of people along if they shift how they they lead and behave. And so that's why you know my, my work has moved from this, this area of intrinsic motivation, which was um, well academic research, but not that practically done. What I'm trying to do now is create a new area of focus, both research and practice around intrinsic leadership. How do we lead in these big inflection moments where, you know, big changes are there, we're in this wicked world, there are no certain answers. We have to tap inside. We have to go to what drives us as leaders. How do we do that really well? Uh, and yeah, that's what more my work is now focusing on. So yeah, it was, it was um, I'd almost say it became a foundation for what I'm doing now, but a really powerful one. And it made me think a lot more about the role of leadership in in building a better a better world for us all. Super. So I look forward to uh, you know reading your book as it progresses on LinkedIn. It's it's fascinating that you're writing it writing it with the people, and I'm sure you're getting feedback as you uh, as you go along. So look forward to also uh, checking that out. Um, Sharad, it's been a real pleasure having you uh, for this conversation. Thanks for taking out the time. Real pleasure, Subo, and look forward to to staying in touch. What I'm taking away from this conversation is that there's so much more we can do to reignite intrinsic motivation in our workplace. The escalator model of building a career will likely not work in a wicked work environment. I love the idea of a mastery increment and rewarding purpose at work. 
Until we meet again, I encourage you to look for opportunities to consciously drive intrinsic motivation at your workplace.